Hi, and welcome to the February 2018 edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have two authors with papers currently in the early view section of the EVJ website. The first is Jose Garcia-Lopez discussing cranial nuchal bursitis, followed by Karsten Starzak talking about dental materials and their influence on the periodontium. Jose Garcia-Lopez is Associate Professor of Large Animal Surgery at Tufts University, Cummings School of Veterinary Medicine, and the Director of the Equine Sports Medicine Programme there. His paper is titled Diagnosis, Treatment and Outcome of Cranial Nuchal Bursitis in 30 Horses. Jose, thank you very much for joining us to discuss your most recent paper in the um, Equine Veterinary Journal. We have a few questions uh, for you to start. Okay. Um, could you first describe uh, what cranial nuchal bursitis is and how horses can get this syndrome or this disease? Yes. So first of all, thank you for the opportunity uh, to, you know, to make this uh, podcast and to, you know, uh, for you guys to be publishing the results of our study. Um, that's a great starting question because nuchal, the cranial nuchal bursa is a bursa that all horses um, have that normally is min- has a minimal amount of fluid and it's a bursa that is located between the uh, nuchal ligament and the dorsal aspect of the first cervical vertebrae. Um, as we saw in a previous publication that we had, there's also uh, a caudal nuchal bursa. That's why this one is called cranial. So, but the caudal nuchal bursa is over the second cervical vertebrae, and that one is actually quite inconsistently present. So, uh, there were some studies done uh, in Germany by other uh, authors that, um, as anatomical description, thesis, etc., that showed that the caudal nuchal bursa was inconsistently present. But uh, the cranial nuchal bursa, which is what we're describing here, is one that is normally present, but it's when it's in a you know on a normal healthy state, it's a bursa that has a minimal amount of fluid within it. So it's one that normally people don't even think about because it's not that you can see it normally. Um, bursitis of the cranial nuchal bursa is basically uh, inflammation of the bursa. It doesn't necessarily have to be a septic or an infectious process. It could be just a, an inflammatory you know, non-septic or aseptic uh, condition, which is uh, one of the things that we've seen that seems to be the most, you know, the higher likelihood is one that is actually still an infectious process per se. Um, why do they get it? It's a great question because we're still not 100% sure of why this happens. Since we think uh, that since um, the group of horses that we seem to see it more, uh, most uh, uh, commonly, are English sport horses and those in particular that have a fairly, you know, uh, amount of uh, work when it comes to their the neck carriage or pole uh, flexion or neck flexion, like horses in dressage uh, or three-day eventing, for example. Uh, even though we've also had them in, you know, in hunters and and, and jumpers, but uh, subjectively, horses that have a fair amount of uh, uh, head flexion, neck flexion, pole flexion. Uh, for their, you know, day-to-day athletic uh, endeavors seem to be the ones that have the most, uh, the, seems to be mostly represented. So we infer, or we have these hypotheses, that it's basically due to uh, um, 
just a constant pressure of that nuchal ligament onto the um, the first cervical vertebrae that in some horses creates an inflammatory response that doesn't you know gets kind of out of hand and then they develop this uh, nuchal bursitis but why uh, it's relatively rare and why it only affects certain horses and other horses that are doing the same discipline don't we're not sure so again we're just having kind of like an informed guess or theory not necessarily that we have a clear-cut answer for why they develop nuchal bursitis do you know how often the cranial and caudal nuchal bursas communicate? Uh, they don't. At all? Um, okay. At all. Um, when, they're, when the caudal nuchal bursa is present, uh, it's on its own. So they don't, uh, they should never communicate unless, the only way that I imagine is if there's some sort of trauma, but they should not communicate. So zero. Okay. So what were the objectives of this study and what did you hypothesize? Yeah, so the objectives um, of this study uh, was to describe, again, the clinical presentation and the techniques that we used from a diagnostic standpoint and the treatment uh, and outcome of horses with cranial nuchal bursitis in a larger group. Uh, we originally had described back in 2010 uh, the condition in four horses, and then we did later uh, another paper uh, that, uh, that was more of an anatomical a study and description of the area uh, to look at this. And then we posted this idea of, you know, let's try to gather as many of these horses as we have from the groups that have been working from the beginning together here, uh, and uh, which is uh, ourselves here at Tufts and the group by Dr. Spoor Markers, Markers in the Netherlands. Uh, he's in Utrecht right now, uh, that we got together and start to describe this condition. So uh, the objective was to try to get the you know a large number or as large as possible group of horses, so, so we can describe it and then also do in a retrospective nature have um, an idea of how they do and uh, you know how many cases were treated medically, how many surgically, setbacks, etc. Um, and uh, our hypothesis was that you know surgical management is most effective to deal with, uh, with these cases by means of um, nucleobersoscopy. So how many horses did you manage to include in your study and what kind of clinical signs did they present with? Sure. So we ended up, uh, we, when we, we looked at records from 1990 to 2014 uh, because we also wanted to have horses, the more recent ones that had at least a year of follow-up. Uh, we had 35 cases originally, but five were excluded, whether there was because a procedure was done open uh, and there's not enough data. One was also euthanized right away at the time of diagnosis, so we actually ended up with 30 cases total. Um, clinical signs, uh, which are interesting because they seem to be, you know, kind of consistent also with the other cases that we've seen since then, is, uh, mul you know, a good half of them with uh, pole swelling which is usually either left-sided or right-sided. Um, it's very, very infrequently will be central. So swelling on the pole region, um, there's a decrease on the amount of neck flexion. Uh, there's also that abnormal head carriage in which the head is usually extended. And in a low number of horses, there was some sort of fistulous tract uh, in which already some discharge coming from the area. So what kind of diagnostic procedures did you use and how did you diagnose that they had nucleobursitis using these modalities? Yes, so most of the horses um, had, uh, well, all horses had ultrasound and we feel, feel that 
ultrasound of all modalities is the um, the cornerstone of our imaging because it gives you a nice uh, description not only of what's happening with the nuchal ligament itself but also the uh, identifies areas of mineralization, the surface of the first cervical vertebrae, and obviously you can have a better characterization of the amount of distension, the pathology that is happening within the bursa and around the bursa. Uh, so um, ultrasound was used in all of them. Uh, 27 of those also had radiographs, uh, which are also quite useful because you can actually have some of the idea of the mineralization that you'll see in some of these cases. And then a low number of horses have nuclear uh, nuclear scintigraphy, uh, and then a handful had a computer tomography and two horses had resonance, uh, magnetic resonance imaging. Um, nuclear medicine uh, was good to look at areas, you know, in that, um, in that region of radioisotope optic when it comes to the dorsal aspect of the first cervical. Uh, it does not necessarily depict the bursa proper, but if you have a fair amount of inflammation uh, because of the close-up position with the dorsal surface of the first cervical, you'll be able to identify it. CT uh, has, you know, you can have some uh, uh, description also of the area uh, by just three-dimensional rendering, uh, same as the reson uh, magnetic resonance imaging, which was quite nice in the couple of horses that we did to look at the distension, the type of fluid composition, and whether the, the bursa was go had any secondary tracks, etc. cetera. Uh, but again, of all, you know, uh, of all diagnostic imaging, the ones that we feel that are almost a must is or should be a must it's a combination of radiographs and ultrasound with ultrasound to me is imperative so once you'd um found a nuchal bursitis uh, using ultrasound the paper discussed how you analyzed synovial fluid collected from the bursa how did you analyze it and what did you find Yes, so um, a number of horses, uh, we were able to obtain enough fluid to do a uh, fluid cytology, uh, an analysis in which, in, you know, in a good number of them, we found a neutrophilic inflammation with a high number of white cells, or an average of 48,000, with a total solids of 6 uh, grams per deciliter or 60 grams per liter. Um, and um, also, we were able to obtain cultures in, um, you know, in 12 horses, in some horses we have repeated cultures, so we had 20 cultures total, but 12 of the 30 horses had cultures performed uh, with some of that synovial fluid. Um, so, um, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the cytology helped us quite a bit uh, to show the amount of active inflammation. Um, a lot of these horses, we had the suspicion that are, it's a not, in, not infectious process, so um, that neutrophilic inflammation that we saw in most cases was basically non-degenerative, non-toxic neutrophils, uh, but obviously a fairly strong inflammatory response. Okay, so then the horses were either treated with medical or surgical intervention. Could you, de could you describe what was involved with each of these treatment paths? Yes, so in, in a number of horses, we would go ahead and again, this was in, this was in the horses in particular that we did earlier, in the retrospective because we shifted the way that kind of like we go ahead around this and this is I think one of the nice things about this discussion to be able to to explain uh, but uh, a number of horses would have an ultrasound guided the ones that we treated medically uh, we would have an ultrasound guided uh, injection into the uh, nuchal bursa with a combination of corticosteroids and uh, hyaluronic acid um, we use either a methylprednisolone acetate or depomedrol uh, mixed with hyalurin uh, or polyglycan, 
or triamcinolone uh, mixed with uh, hyaluron or uh, um, polyglycan. So that will be the medical management that uh, with, when it comes to intra, you know, intraversal therapy, plus some systemic anti-inflammatories, whether it was uh, phenylbutazone or flunixin. Um, in the horses that either were not responsive to medical management or the ones that we decided that medical management would not be uh, likely to have a, a positive result, we went ahead and, and went directly to uh, surgery by means of uh, nuchal bursoscopy, in which we would basically do uh, under general anesthesia, rigid endoscope uh, uh, or a four, four millimeter arthroscope into the bursa, which would first uh, direct uh, with ultrasound guidance to make sure that we are into the tissue that we need to be, and then we would pr uh, uh, perform a fairly aggressive debridement of the of the contents of the bursa for plus a very copious lavage uh, of fluids to get rid of all the debris uh, and all the uh, uh, cellular material from within it. What kind of numbers of horses did you have in each group? Um, we did from um, uh, from a from a medical standpoint. Uh, we um, it's it's a it's a little you know little mix because there's a number of horses that we uh, we treated medically that then went into into uh, uh, into surgical you know into surgical uh, um, uh, intervention. So. Um, from ours, let me just bring up these numbers to make sure that I'm accurate on that. 14, so we had 14 horses in which medical management was attempted, uh, and then four of those, because of uh, incomplete or lack of improvement, went on to have surgery. So uh, uh, 16 horses had surgical management directly, and then, you know, 20 uh, had, a, you know, had surgery altogether because of the four that medical management failed to do what we wanted to do. Okay. So what were the rates of recurrence of the bursitis after each of these treatments? Um, that's, that was also part of the, uh, that's actually one of the things that is kind of interesting because of um, we have, you know, we divided things in, in different groups versus, mm -hmm. you know, the groups in which medical management was attempted, the ones that surgical management was attempted and some of the ones that, the ones that had a, a, medical man uh, surgical management following the you know uh of the uh um uh surgical intervention following the the the, the failed medical management um so so out of the out of the 30 horses if we look at all of them you know uh, uh, the total we had 24 horses uh which we were able to have uh, uh, follow-ups. Uh, overall, 41% uh, of horses, or almost 42% of horses, had the recurrence of the uh, of the clinical signs, in which there's still some swelling. And we've also learned that even some horses, though, will have some swelling, even though the the neck flexion and movement and complaints are actually not there. So it's also kind of important that swelling, it's you know, it's a uh, it's a potential quote-unquote complication, but not every single horse that has a swelling means that it's failure of treatment. So that's kind of important to kind of differentiate. Um, so some of them had, uh, we had seven horses that had continued, uh, continued swelling out of those 10. Um, and then four horses developed the, the fistulous tracts uh, through the endoscopic sites. So 
that's all that's that's to me the real complication are the ones that have they they develop these tracks uh through the through the um through the endoscopic portals because of the depth of the portals um and uh, a lot of times they don't seal the way we want to and then once they develop these fistulous tracks they could be uh um uh, you know an issue uh to, to manage those um and then um so so the swelling again the swelling over the area have to be careful because just because there's swelling doesn't mean that treatment failed if that's if that makes sense mm, absolutely how how did the long term outcome um of these horses differ did it um depend significantly on the choice of treatment or the synovial fluid analysis, say. So. Yeah, good question. Yeah, so synovial fluid analysis didn't seem to have, you know, as much of a, of a, of a matter of fact with regards to how well they did, you know, long term. However, the ones that we have the most amount of complications were the horses that medic, even though there were only four, but those horses that had medical management, medical management failed, and then we went into surgical management. Those ones were the ones that were fraught with more complications. Um, so, you know, so overall, 79% almost of horses were able to go to their previous level of exercise. Um, so, you know, which I was, you know, was pleased to see that number. Mm-hmm. Of the ones that we dealt medically only, only 33%, uh, sorry, 30, 33% had a recurrence of the clinical signs. Uh, and, uh, and 66% were, were able to rem- to return to their previous level of, of exercise. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that we found, uh, we've seen some characteristics since then, uh, in some of these horses to be able to differentiate them, but horses that, uh, have the, have an effusion that is in, of low cellularity, uh, um, and, uh, there's little debris within the bursa, but more effusion per se, um, those horses uh, seem to be the ones that are best candidates for medical management first to try to get inflammation to subside, uh, to get the area um, uh, to settle down, and then be able to, to go back to their work. Once you have either a fairly highly cellular material in there uh, or a lot of debris, so sometimes you might not be able to do cytology even because it's actually mostly tissue, fibrinous tissue or fibrous tissue within it, um, those horses don't seem to respond well to medical management um so those are the ones that surgical intervention first uh before going in uh, and trying to avoid uh intraversal injections would be warranted okay so as you mentioned 67 percent of those medically treated returned to previous levels of exercise and i think 79 percent of the surgically treated were able to go back correct so Would surgery be your first line approach now, your first choice for most of them? For most of them. However, the ones that I would have no hesitation, again, to deal with medical management first are the ones in which on ultrasound, the bursa has a fair amount of anechoic fluid with a low cellularity and low amount of debris. If it's just an effusive type of bursitis, I would not hesitate to treat medically via an intraversal injection with corticosteroids and hyaluronic acid or polyglycan. Um, if um, if that is uh, if the tissue looks the cord, the the capsule looks inflamed or fairly thickened and there's a far amount of hyperechoic material within it, and even if you can get cytology to get a number, 
those I would very, very, very strongly recommend to avoid medical management and go to surgery directly. So uh, on a whole, as a whole, based on the cases that we've seen in this study, but also since then, uh, I would do surgery in most of these horses because we seem to see them with a fair amount of debris within them. But the, the small number that we've seen or the smaller number that we've seen with uh, uh, just with an anechoic effusion, we won't hesitate to do medical management on those ones. You mentioned earlier that you saw a higher frequency of um, mucobursitis in a particular breed and discipline. Did this study reflect that? Did you see horses of any particular age, breed or discipline um, more frequently in the study? No, the age, the age for us was a wide range. We went anywhere from, from 5 to 22 years of age. Uh, pretty much all the horses that we saw were some sort of English sport horses. Um, so, uh, but again, that also reflects, um, a fair amount of our case population here since, uh, that's the cases, uh, that we see, uh, you know, a fair amount, but, you know, warm bloods, we seem to be, uh, overrepresented in our group, but again, that's a little, that's, it goes with our, um, uh, you know, with our case population and mo and around 57, 58% of the horses were dressage horses. Um, so, um, there's also three day eventers that we have, but obviously we'll be doing dressage, uh, but you know, uh, dressage horses seem to be slightly overrepresented here, but it's a little dangerous to be saying that it's a discipline that is in, you know, that is the one that is going to be most likely affected because we're still gathering information about, you know, exactly why for like the original question, why does this bursitis occurs? And, uh, again, we have some ideas on, horses with their head carriage, et cetera, uh, or a fair amount of neck flexion or pole flexion. But again, those are educated guesses more than, uh, uh, you know, black and white answers there. Okay. And lastly, what's your take home message for us? Um, take home message is that this condition is not overly common, but it's actually more uh, prevalent than what we originally were thought. Um, and, uh, and horses, especially English sport horses in which they are either fighting the bit or have an issue with, you know, neck flexion and extension or have a fairly, uh, consistent extended, uh, head and neck position. Looking at this region is one that is worthwhile. Um, doing a simple ultrasound in the pole region, um, should be quite helpful because normally, this uh, structure, if it's normal, will not be visible. The nuchal burst, the cranial nuchal burst, as I said before, uh, doesn't have much of any fluid when it's normally in its normal state. So seeing uh, cranial, uh, cranial nuchal burst so that is distended or has some, a moderate amount of fluid is already abnormal finding. Uh, and based uh, in these horses, if the effusion is uh, fairly anechoic and just the bursa is just fluid-filled, I think medical management is worthwhile. However, if there's a fair amount of hyperechoic material on ultrasound and debris, uh, or it's mostly uh, thickened tissue versus effusive, surgical management should be the first choice of treatment. Okay, Jose, thank you very much for your time today. No problem. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next, we have Carsten Stasek, who is a professor at the University of Gießen, Germany and works at the Institute of Veterinary Anatomy, Histology and Embryology. Carsten will discuss his paper titled Influence of Dental Materials on Cells of the Equine Periodontium. 
Hi, Carsten. Thank you very much for joining us today to discuss your recent paper in EVJ. Um, to start off, you mentioned in the introduction that the reported prevalence of equine periodontal disease ranges from 22 to as high as 60%. So what predisposes horses to this condition? And how do the prevalences compare with that seen in other species? Oh, yes. Um, actually, there's a quite high uh, prevalence and the horses reported, as you already mentioned, um, up to uh, 60%. Um, in other species, especially in dogs, um, there are similar prevalences reported. Uh, um, it is um, dependent on the study and on the breed. Um, there are reported prevalences of 44 up to 100%, for example, in poodles over five years. Um, so, um, however, when we talk about periodontal disease, uh, we um, we get the imagination that periodontal disease in dogs and in humans is the same as in horses, but that is not. Uh, when we talk about periodontal disease, we should keep in mind that in uh, in, 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 in in human and in in dogs we have a brachiodont dentition, and uh, periodontal disease is in these species mostly always um, associated with a plaque, and uh, periodontal disease affects the whole surrounding of the teeth. However, in horses, uh, we should keep in mind that the uh, that the cheek teeth are pressed together, are firmly pressed together. Um, uh, that is due to their anatomical position, and in, um, in horses there are no interdental spaces usually. However, whenever these interdental spaces or interdental spaces, uh, spaces are created by a misalignment of teeth or by other factors, for example, age, uh, foot can be pushed into these interdental spaces. And now imagine foot entrapped in interdental spaces and in those positions, not surrounding the teeth, but in interdental spaces, you will have or you will see um, an infection, an infection of the gingiva and an infection of the, um, the periodontium underneath the gingiva. And so you see there's a difference between Brachiodont and hypsodont species um, in the in, in the type of periodontal disease, and uh, with this uh, explanation, I already explained the predisposing factors in the horse that cause um, um, periodontal disease. That is a widening of the interdental spaces. Okay, so how do you treat this disease, um, and what materials do you usually use in this process? Yes, uh, from my previous explanation, it has become clear that food is entrapped, is pushed into interdental spaces in the horse. And um, now you can imagine how the treatment uh, is. Um, usually there's a cleaning and debridement of the interdental spaces. Uh, food is pushed out, is washed out. And um, after that, um, many um, many clinicians go and widen and use widening of the internal spaces 
um, just by grinding um, on the teeth on the mesial and distal surfaces of the teeth um, to um, to provide to create a, um, a situation um, of extra widened interdental spaces, spaces and um, that is due to the to the effect that a foot can go in further on of course but then it can be washed out when these are widened interdental spaces and um, 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 that is one um, treatment option and the other further add-on is to fill these interdental spaces uh, with materials and um, there are no materials available especially made for this purpose in horses and, and that is the reason why clinicians use different materials uh, impression materials other materials adapt, ad adapted from human medicine uh, to fill and to uh, yes to fill these interdental spaces and to uh, prevent food um, from um, being pushed into these interdental spaces again. Okay, so what were the aims and objectives of this study? Yeah, as I explained before, there are no materials produced by any company. Um, to be used in the horse for periodontal diseases and uh, especially not for filling interdental spaces. So um, the materials that are in use by several clinicians um, are therefore not uh, tested for this purpose in the horse. And now our, um, our first um, our first a goal was yes to study which uh, materials should be used or what are the advantages and disadvantages of these materials and of course a clinical trial would be perfect but um, you might imagine um, that the conduction the performance of a clinical study in horses is very very uh, it's very, very uh, difficult to organize. Uh, so we, um, we 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 looked on the on, on the cells, and um, we now try we now tried uh, to investigate the the effect of each of the substances on cells to get a first idea of which materials. Um, um, promote cell proliferation or um, keep the cells vital and whether they are substances uh, which are harmful to the cells. Okay, could you tell us a little bit about the four different materials you were looking at? So I think this included pericare, provicol, yeah. calyxyl and honigum. Yeah. So um, what are they used for in human medicine and how do they differ? Um, yes, so there are three calcium hydroxide materials, that is the pericare, the provicol, and the calcium. Uh, the pericare is an oily suspension, and the provicol is a, a, a cementum containing um, um, substance containing uh, calcium hydroxide. The pericare is actually um, made for use in periodontal pockets in humans. Uh, the provicol is usually um, used as a fixing uh, cementum, uh, for example, to affix crowns or bridges 
in human dental medicine, of course. And the calcule, that is a substance which is used usually for endodontic treatments. And there, uh, the, the fourth um, material we used, that is honeygum, that is a silicon-based material which is usually used uh, to prepare implants and uh, to make impressions um, in, in human medicine. Okay, so mm-hmm. could you describe how you decided to investigate the effects of these materials on the equine periodontium? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so uh, as we know from several clinicians that these materials of course, among others, uh, were used. Uh, so we just um, imagined uh, which uh, which model is, is should be used, and um, all these materials are placed directly on the debrided wounds in the interdental spaces. So um, our first attempt was to to, uh, provide a direct contact between cultured cells, periodontal fibroblasts, and these materials um, to uh, to simulate a, a direct contact. And we... That was one part of our experiments, and the other, um, the other thought uh, was that substances which come out um, from these materials uh, will go into in, into the depths of the wound, into the depths of the periodontal um, uh, tissue, and therefore we. Um, we we made an illusion of these uh, materials. That means uh, we put um, some samples of these materials in um, in a solution, uh, which was then placed on the cells. Uh, so we try to simulate uh, the the situation in 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 the um, in in in, um, in vivo. Uh, so direct contact to the cells of the materials and um, a perfusion of, mater- of, of, of substances of the materials into uh, the depths of the periodontal tissue. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you use your cultured equine periodontal fibroblasts and mm-hmm. expose them to the four different materials diluted in the culture medium. Um, mm-hmm. So I think you measured... Uh, morphology of cells, mm-hmm. uh, cell viability, and um, gene expression of the, the mm-hmm. fibroblasts. So yes. firstly, how did the various uh, dental materials affect the cell morphology um, of your equine periodontal fibroblasts? Yes, of course, uh, we compared the cell morphology with controls, and Pericare and Provicol, they did not change the morphology of the cells. Uh, Usually, these fibroblasts are elongated cells firmly attached to the ground. Um, When we used the honeygum, we saw a fraction of the cells um, becoming rounded, becoming a little bit shrunken, and uh, that means these cells uh, um, tend to detach from the ground, and that is a sign of uh, cell death in in, in the culture. And uh, when we use the calcule, uh, immediately, shortly after, 
the exposure to calyxyl, uh, most of the cells died. That means um, after a while we saw shrunken, rounded cells free-floating in the medium. However, I have to say that the mere um, uh, evaluation of the morphology does not say very much about the effect effect of the uh, materials. That is one part of our investigation, uh, the cell morphology. Okay, mm -hmm. so you also measured cell viability and gene expression, as mm -hmm. I mentioned, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. when the equine periodontal cells were cultured with the various dental materials and with and without extracted, um, sorry, with and without LPS or mm -hmm. lipopolysaccharide extracted mm -hmm. from a bacteria commonly mm -hmm. found to cause gingivitis. Mm -hmm. So how did each of the dental materials influence the viability and gene expression of the cells and with and without the LPS? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, in, in our first uh, trials, we saw that Pericare and Provicol and also Honeygum did not have much effect on the cell vi viability. Uh, but uh, as I explained, as we saw from the morphology experiments, uh, calcul uh, had a disastrous effect on the cells. Um, the, the, the cells died. <laughs> there was no viability left, of course. And um, after these first experiments, uh, we, um, we thought, okay, when uh, there are no effects uh, uh, provided by Provicol and, um, and Pericare and Honeygum, uh, what will happen when we, when we change the solution, the concentration, and we doubled the concentration of these materials, and uh, even with the doubled concentration, we did not see any effect of the pericare and the provicol. However, we found a dose-dependent effect on the honeygum. That means uh, if we double the concentration, we do see uh, um, a decreased a decreasing of the um, viability in the cells. That means... With higher concentrations, uh, the honeygum will have um, effects that um, limit the viability of the cells. And uh, with the calcul, uh, we have the concentration because we get the imagination when there's a given concentration when we um, halve it or when we decrease the concentration uh, there might be um, not too harmful effects in the cell culture but that was not true uh, even uh, low concentration of calyxial halved concentrations had the same disastrous defect and killed all the cells and what was their gene expression um, analysis yeah. Yes, uh, with uh, the gene expression, we uh, saw a sp special kind of uh, gene expression um, with the um, LPS. Uh, in the LPS, we saw an uh, increase of the EL um, interleukin number six. And um, however, uh, we observed um, other uh, genes being more expressed uh, when we, are, for example, um, um, 
uh, provided honeygum to the cells, and that was um, the interleukin um, um, beta, which was increased with honeygum. And uh, so we see uh, that the the effects in the cells, uh, which are usually stimulated by the um, by the LPS, are different from the effects that are caused uh, by honeygum. So both. Um, uh, both materials, LPS and honeygum, um, uh, uh, stimulates the um, stimulates the cells uh, to express interleukins, uh, but uh, the, the the expression is different from one uh, LPS uh, interleukin uh, number six is increased and honeygum increases interleukin beta. So different mechanisms um, stimulating um, the, um, the inflammatory uh, response. Okay, so after evaluating all your results, mm. which material would you now choose to use when treating periodontal disease? So that was a in vitro study. And from our in vitro results, we can conclude that Pericare and Provicol will not have harmful effects on the cells. We know that the honeygum, especially when at these areas where honeycomb will have direct contact to the cells, uh, will have um, will have effects with which uh, stimulate uh, inflammatory processes and which also um, limit the viability of the cells. And calcium will have a disastrous effect. Calcium will, uh, will, uh, will cause death of the cells in their surrounding. Um, that is, uh, they, these are the results, the conclusions from the in vitro experiments. However, I want to keep in mind that in vivo, uh, the situation is different. Also, in these in vivo um, in vivo condition, uh, we can state that Provicol and uh, Pericare will have quite good effects on the cells. Honeygum will um, um, cause that of the cells or will um, limit the viability of the cells. However, honeygum and also calcium might have advantageous effect when treating periodontal pockets. So why is that? Um, uh, we um, need to know or we should imagine that um, treating the, um, uh, the periodontal pockets needs first to promote a proliferation of the periodontal cells and also um, need to um, need to reduce the infection and the uh, uh, microorganisms uh, living, living there in the periodontal um, space. And uh, honeygum and especially calcium might have a very good effect on the microorganisms. And in long term, both, um, both substances might have a beneficial effect. However, um, therefore, we actually need further experiments. We actually need um, clinical trials, trials to um, evaluate the effects when applied in, in the in vivo uh, situation. 
Okay. So yeah. as you said, the in vivo situation is obviously different to um, what's going on in the horse's mouth. Mm. Um, have you got any co-culture experiments planned? So combining um, the periodontal fibroblasts with other cells surrounding, so alveolar mm. bone or um, cement mm. substances such as cementum or saliva? Mm. So yes, of course, uh, we are interested, uh, after these experiments, uh, we are interested in the effects of those substances on epithelial cells. That is the, another uh, factor. Uh, you need to cure uh, the d disease, a uh, re-epithelization of the interdental uh, spaces. And um, we have a mind to conduct experiments using epithelial cells too. And uh, further, uh, you need uh, to um, to heal these periodontal, um, deep periodontal pockets, interdental pockets. You need to re-establish an alveolar bone and even dental cementum. And um, these are other target cells of which we are looking on, which we are looking for, um, osteoblastic cells and um, cyberblastic cells and uh, we were have we we would be happy if it would be possible to look on the effect of these substances to those cells okay so finally custom what's your take-home message for us <laughs> Yeah, actually, it's a very simple one. The first one, be cautious whenever you adapt materials which are originally originally not intended to be used in the horse uh, for very special um, purposes. And the second is, by now we know that pericare and pervicol will not harm the cells in the periodontal space, in the interdental um, um, pockets. Okay. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much for your time today, Carsten. Yes, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Please join us for the next episode.